ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Thursday, the 21st of December. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. As flood-affected communities in far north Queensland continue the mammoth clean-up, there are warnings it could take several years for some homes to be repaired or rebuilt. That's partly because there's likely to be a shortage of tradies to do the work, as Bridget Fitzgerald reports. With an estimated 1,400 damaged homes in Cairns alone and more than two dozen communities still isolated, the recovery from the record-breaking flood is likely to take years. It's not a cookie cutter. There's lots of different situations which have to be addressed and they can take time. So I'd expect it to easily go on for a couple of years. Tony Mitchell is the General Manager of Building Services and Licensing at Master Builders Queensland and a lot of this work we have to wait for it to dry out. And we still have the cyclone season ahead of us as well, so that there's, there's more to come most likely. And the insurance is involved doing the assessment and then resourcing that and actually physically doing the work. You can just see where six months just disappeared, just getting things up and running. And then, of course, there are the workers. It could be tricky finding enough builders, plumbers, carpenters and electricians, although the labour shortages of the past few years have eased. Everyone is aware of the complexities of trying to find people and trying to accommodate them. We can only cross that bridge when we come to it. Um, We do have some quietening down in the market as far as people being able to program a little bit better. We've seen some change in that over the last six to 12 months, so that's an encouraging sign. Much further south, Lismore and the Northern Rivers region of New South Wales are coming up to two years since their record-breaking flood, and there's still plenty of work to be done there. One of the major barriers, the workforce. We're doing whatever we can to find ways to attract tradespeople from outside of our community, but it's, it's very difficult. Ellie Bird is a counsellor in Lismore and executive director of flood recovery group Resilient Lismore. Lismore's long-term recovery is expected to take up to 15 years. We had around 5,000 homes across the region severely damaged and so it's a very, very long road to recovery for us. In an attempt to provide accommodation to people quickly, Resilient Lismore has repaired more than 100 homes to a point where they can be used as basic shelter. The programs also allowed people to stay in their local area during the recovery years. And there are still a lot of people in our community living in those types of homes. So no internal walls, damaged bathrooms, temporary makeshift kitchens inside the homes. Some people are in tents underneath the homes or inside the homes, but they have a physical structure that is around them. And Ellie Bird has this message to those in far north Queensland. Find each other, come together together. Um, do your best to support each other and um, make sure that you're advocating for your needs. The Queensland Disaster Management Committee, which includes Master Builders Queensland, will meet tomorrow. Bridget Fitzgerald reporting. As the Queensland flood cleanup continues, this time last year it was South Australia's Riverland that was dealing with its biggest flood in more than 60 years. The floodwaters moved downstream slowly but stuck around for months and the cleanup is still happening. As Angus Randall reports, in the small town of Kingston-on-Murray, the destruction of the local caravan park has had huge implications for the community. This time of year, the Kingston-on-Murray caravan park in South Australia's Riverland should be filled with campers, 
but it was inundated by the River Murray floods last summer, despite owner Jeff Calvert's best efforts many months before to protect it. The June long weekend, the year before, we started preparing, trying to get the levee bank built up. We were thinking we we're going to save the park. The privately built levee was almost finished when floodwaters went over the top, damaging the park facilities and Jeff Calvert's home. January, February, the water started receding, but because my levee bank never broke, it actually acted like a big dam. You just, I can't look at the whole job because it's just too big for me. I get overwhelmed, so I just look at little tasks to tackle. So at the moment we'll focus on getting in the house, so at least that'll save me my rent being vacated for so long, the rats, the mice, the snakes, the spiders moved in, chewed up all the carpets and destroyed a lot of the appliances and that sort of thing up there and nested in the beds. Hopefully um, a company will be coming in, they'll level all this out and then fix up the levee bank. So this levee is going to be a sort of semi-permanent fixture for the time being? Absolutely, that's my life savings gone into that. <laughs> and there will be another flood, so you'd be silly to remove it. You know, there's over 300,000 plus going into that. Since the floodwaters receded, members of the tiny community have been pitching in to help. It's a massive job and Jeff Calvert still doesn't know when the caravan park can reopen. Uh, that'll be up to the insurance company. They're still delaying any payments. and So, yeah, I don't know when I get that or how much I'm getting, so it's very hard to rebuild anything when you don't have a budget. Kingston-on-Murray is home to around 300 people. During summer, the population balloons to welcome water skiers wanting to make the most of the river. The van park's the only accommodation, and on top of its temporary closure, a river cruise business is also yet to reopen, while the general store closed for good over winter, leaving residents without a post office. Jeff Calvert's wife, Barbara, is now a volunteer postie. So it's very tough on a lot of the locals here. Yeah, we just wanted to maintain a post office in our little township. Houseboat operator Paul Beer docks his boats on the river at Kingston-on-Murray. It's been a tough few years with COVID and then the floods, but he says things are looking up this summer. We're pretty much booked out till May. As a business owner, you want everyone to know about it, but as a resident, you don't want anyone to know about it because we love our little sleepy little nook, so um, it's, it's good as a resident that it's nice and quiet. For now, the tiny community is happy for the holidaymakers to return. Angus Randall. United Nations Security Council vote on another Gaza resolution has been delayed for a third time. A draft resolution being circulated called for urgent and extended humanitarian pauses and the return of Israeli hostages. Diplomats are trying to avoid a third veto from the United States, which is Israel's strongest ally. North America correspondent Carrington Clark is in Washington and has been following the developments. Well, once again, the vote at the United Nations Security Council has been delayed. What we're hearing from the representative from the United Arab Emirates, which is the one sponsoring the resolution, is that they expect it will go to a vote tomorrow. And it all hinges really on the United States. They have previously vetoed a proposal at the United Nations Security Council, which they're able to do as one of the five permanent members, and it seems that they're still not happy with the text. The draft resolution does call for humanitarian pauses in the conflict and for all parties involved with the conflict to allow more aid to flow into Gaza. We have heard from the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, who says that they are in support of more help for the civilians of Gaza, but are concerned about the current wording. So we've been at the forefront of all of these efforts, uh, and we want to make sure that the resolution in what it uh, calls for and requires 
actually advances that effort and doesn't do anything that could actually hurt the delivery of humanitarian assistance, make it more complicated. And Carrington, while the diplomatic wrangling goes on at the United Nations in New York, what are the leaders of Israel and Hamas saying? Well, the leader of Hamas, Ismail Haniyeh, has arrived in Egypt. He's meeting there with high-level security officials, and it's believed they're putting in the work to potentially come to a deal with Israel for a cessation of hostilities in order to secure the release of some of the hostages still being held in Gaza. However, the Prime Minister of Israel has struck an aggressive tone. He said Hamas has two options, either surrender or die, but also says that anyone who believes that Israel will stop before it has achieved its aims, and it said very clearly that it believes Hamas can no longer be in any sort of control in Gaza, is detached from reality. So it seems difficult to see where they can find common ground in order to strike such a deal. North America correspondent Carrington Clark. Electricity produced from renewables such as wind and solar plants remains the lowest cost forms of energy and should stay that way for years. That's according to the latest draft report from the science agency, the CSIRO, and AEMO, the Australian Energy Market Operator. It also finds that small modular nuclear reactors, something the coalition's keen on, are the most expensive forms of power and it'll take another 15 years before the first one could be built. The Climate and Change and Energy Minister is Chris Bowen. Minister, welcome to AM. What's the purpose of this report? So this report is a joint collaboration between the CSIRO and AEMO, our energy market operator. It's happened since 2018. It's done independent and arm's length for government and it's designed to give guidance to the market, to investors, to governments about what the cheapest forms of energy are. And its uh, conclusions this year are unimpeachable and very, very clear. Uh, The cheapest form of energy is renewable energy, even including the costs that go with uh, renewable energy uh, around storage and transmission. Is it politically convenient for you that the report also says that small modular nuclear plants are very expensive and even if there was political will to make it happen in Australia, it wouldn't be powering the first one until 2038? Well, facts are facts, Sabra, and they are the facts, them the facts, and uh, the opposition will need to take those facts into account. They are a fact-free zone when it comes to their energy policy. They are driven by ideology and a hatred of renewable energy. That is very clear, and they will come up with any excuse to delay uh, renewable energy rollouts, and their latest inactivist excuse has been to embrace small modular reactors, which have always been, which have, which are the next big idea, always have been and always will be. Uh, they are the most expensive form of energy available. This report makes it very, very clear. Uh, Ted O'Brien, the Shadow Minister, has previously engaged in quite inappropriate attacks on CSIRO and AMO, independent bodies who prepared this report at arm's length from government, and their findings today are clear, and the opposition will need to deal with those findings. There's been criticism in the past that these calculations by the energy regulator to compare energy sources excludes the full cost, transmission and batteries, but you've made it clear that that, this report also factors that in. Is that right? That's correct. And each year CSIRO consults about what factors should go in. Uh, These criticisms in the past have been erroneous and ill-placed, but nevertheless, CSIRO and AEMO have agreed uh, to include... Uh, those costs between 2024 and 2030 in this report. 
even including those costs, it's very, very clear renewable energy is the cheapest. And in fact, the cost of nuclear energy has blown out substantially based on the best evidence that the CSIRO has amassed from around the world. This is a draft report. What happens now? It goes out for consultation. It's the standard process which has existed since 2018, uh, but the clear direction of travel of the analysis and work of CSIRO and AEMO is very clear. On a related subject, the energy companies are unhappy with the way default prices are set for electricity customers across Australia. They've written to the energy regulator saying that the pendulum has swung well away, making their profits too slim because of the caps on prices. What's your response? I don't agree. I think the Australian Energy Regulator does an excellent job. They weigh up a whole range of factors. Energy company profits have been healthy. And I think in this spirit, uh, in this environment of cost of living pressure, it's quite right that the Australian Energy Regulator would prioritise cost of living. Uh, And I know my state and territory ministers agree with me about that. Uh, uh, And uh, accordingly, that is what I expect the Australian Energy Regulator would do. Uh, Of course, we want profitable energy companies, but we want uh, families receiving cost of living relief as well. Now, next year's default, default market offer, we'll see a draft in February, will be very different to last year's. We're already seeing wholesale prices way down on last year. That's one of the inputs, not the only input, one of the inputs uh, into the default market offer. Uh, but I don't agree uh, with uh, uh, any argument to say energy company profits should be prioritised. Why do you think they're putting pen to paper and saying this? And they're also warning that uh, the the market's becoming increasingly unattractive for investment. Companies are entitled to put a view which maximises their profit, and indeed that's their job. It's not my job or the Australian Energy Regulator's job, however. Uh, we have a national interest to account for uh, and uh, we'll continue to account for it. Are they being greedy? Uh, I don't, not words I would use. They are entitled to try and maximise their profits. I don't, I don't engage in the sort of you know attacks on... Uh, on energy companies that previous energy ministers have done. What I do is get on with the job, but I also call it as I see it. And uh, and in my view, uh, energy companies are entitled to a profit, uh, but uh, consumers are entitled to be prioritised in the Australian Energy Regulator's determinations. The predictions of a prolonged El Nino over summer, How just how stable is the national grid in coping with days and days of extra demand as people put on air conditioners with less coal-fired power to ensure steady supply? Look, we are in for a long, hot summer, that has been clear, and you can't avoid that, but you can prepare for it. And as we go into that long, hot summer, the biggest risk to reliability is that coal-fired power, uh, coal-fired power stations uh, not working at short notice, but to prepare, and we, we, we've experienced that already in recent does that, weeks. Does that keep you awake at night? Well, it's a matter that we need to manage, and we do manage together with our market operators in the states. Uh, it's a fact of life that coal fire power is getting older and less reliable. And again, we've seen some examples of that with units going out at very short notice in recent weeks. Now, that doesn't mean uh, that we can't prepare for that, and we have prepared for it. You know, we go into this summer with 3.4 gigawatts of generation available that wasn't available last summer. Uh, we convened a capacity and connections committee, uh, the states and territories and I, and the federal government gave uh, EMO more money to get connections uh, faster for this summer. As a result, 23 energy projects 
have been uh, connected and generating in the lead up to this summer. So that does give us the maximum rigour and the maximum uh, robustness going into what is a long, hot summer. As I said, there's always risks, and the biggest risk in our energy system now is coal-fired power, which, uh, through no fault of the workers who are doing a great job, but just with ageing plant, um, is increasingly unreliable as it works harder and longer uh, through a long, hot summer. But what we can do is prepare for it, and we have prepared for it, and every preparation has been put in place, and therefore the system's robust. Chris Bowen, thanks for joining AM. Nice to talk to you, Sarah. And Chris Bowen is the Federal Climate Change and Energy Minister. tiny country community has become divided over plans to transform their town into a foodie tr- tourism hub. Kongwak in Victoria's South Gippsland region is home to farmers and tree changers, but there are fears a developer's multi-million dollar vision will change the small hamlet forever. It's raised bigger questions in the community about who gets to decide what the future of the town should look like, as Jeremy Story Carter reports. It's a Sunday morning in Conwack, two hours southeast of Melbourne. And the normally quaint local market has a different edge to it. Yellow signs confront visitors as they arrive. Save Conwack, reads one. Preserve our valley of peace, cries another. Market owner Janet Seaholm is not a fan. We do get a few questions about the signs and I think it's unfortunate because, um, you know, it is called the valley of peace and they're a bit negative. The signs are part of a protest against a planned development in the town's old butter factory. A Melbourne couple plan to turn it into a 130-seater restaurant, art space, wedding and events venue. On any given night, the accommodation will more than double Conwack's population of around 50. The site backs on to Lee and Stephen Storty's farm. It's going to be an absolute nightmare. It's definitely a big impact on the town, definitely. It's going to upset a lot of people. Like, to be completely changed from that tranquility into something... For someone privately to make money, it's just a bit hard. I, we would even consider selling the farm. Conwick has no town sewerage, gas or water. And some locals say the development is too big for a town so small. Organiser of the Save Conwick group, Michael Knowles, believes around 80% of the town's homeowners oppose it. It's not nimbyism for us. We are not opposed to any development. What we are opposed to is this development. We basically think it's just too big. The developers Gemma Cosgriff and Damien Backholler insist they have the community's interests in mind. We do appreciate that uh, to some people, you know, we might be seen as the rich people from the city that are blowing into town and um, changing things. We're hustling here. We're working so hard on this project. We are putting our blood, sweat and tears into it. And this is not the big, scary developer coming into town to do something. Associate Professor Joanne Pike from Victoria University says the new wave of food and experiential tourism sweeping through regional towns isn't necessarily for everyone. It is seen as uh, something nice and uncontroversial, but with every tourism development, unless it's very carefully planned, can have quite negative impacts. It's a double-edged sword in many, many The developers' plans are being reviewed by the Victorian government through a new fast-track process that avoids the usual council approvals. Local gardener Carolyn Rosen fears what will happen if it goes ahead. Little pockets of towns like this are important, I think, in the world. We need little hamlets and villages and towns that are a little bit off the grid and aren't selling themselves out to big commercial ventures. Kongwak resident Carolyn Rosen ending Jeremy Story Carter's report. And that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. 
I'm Cyber Lang.